High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of January 18th. Coming up on today's show. Are you ready for Mega Doom? Retro computing goes mainstream. Reinventing the mouse. And overclocking the Super FX chip. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. Doom, for want of a less cliched term, was a real game changer, John. The pseudo 3D first person shooter managed to highlight the power of the PC as a games machine while driving home the message that your 16 bit games console would never, ever be able to run this thing. If you wanted it, you'd need to upgrade it. For the Mega Drive and SNES owners, this was a really hard pill to swallow, knowing that you were no longer on the cutting edge of gaming. But to be fair, by 1993, the next generation really was on the horizon. It was knocking on the door. So we knew it was coming, but Doom, man, we all wanted Doom. I know I did. <laughs> I don't know how it was for you, but it just seemed everyone wanted a piece of Doom. Now, yes, the, SNES, yes. the SNES would eventually get a port of Doom in 1995. So by then we were into the PlayStation era. And that was made possible thanks to the Super FX chip. In fact, it was the Super FX 2 chip that was on the SNES port. That gave it the grunt it needed to run, but it was really, really slow. The graphics were muddy. It had all kinds of bugs. It really wasn't the doom that we know and love. Over on the Mega Drive, you actually got a nice port of the game. But to be able to do that, you needed to buy the 32X. So the Sega add-on, which cost as much, if not more, than the console itself. Um, so, you know, is that a really fair comparison? I'm not so sure. You were throwing a lot of money at it. But for vanilla Mega Drive owners... There was no Doom. The only way it would have been possible, I think, with hindsight, would have been if you'd used the SVP chip, which Sega included in games such as Virtua Racing, and they sold for close to £100 a piece as it was. But they never actually got around to making that. So technically, I think it would have been possible with that chip, but it didn't happen. Until now, John, I know you were waiting for me to say that. Until now, <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about this new Doom port. It runs on a bog-standard Mega Drive. And we'll talk about it shortly, but let's just talk a little bit about Doom first, because it's one of those games I think we can all remember when we first played, such was its impact. At least I'm hoping we can all remember, because you're going to tell us your first memories now, John. Can you remember <laughs> when you first played Doom? I, you know, reaching back through the mist of time, I can. Uh, I, I actually played the much maligned uh, Super Nintendo version of Doom more than I did on any other system. So that's that's sort of the oh, Doom that I know. Yeah. It it came in that distinctive red cartridge. I, I believe it was the only or one of a few Super Nintendo games to actually come in a colored cartridge. So you had the red cartridge, which meant it was violent and it was great. Uh, but you know, the, the Super Nintendo version, of course, was not great. Um, you know, compared to the PC version, it was definitely a downgrade. It used the old trick, which you found on a lot of old, you know, 8 and 16-bit computers where they were able to increase the frame rate by letterboxing the screen. They just made everything mm -hmm. smaller to try and speed things up. But, um, and, you know, even though the textures couldn't hold a candle to the PC version, in a lot of cases, the textures were just missing altogether. Um, I don't think the performance was actually, you know, the dirt worst. Uh, 
uh, the, the real problem with the game was that it lacked any kind of saving mechanism. Uh, you, you had to finish the game in one sitting, which, as you know, is, is, is basically impossible unless you just leave your system on, you know, for, for a week or so. So uh, I had a brief run with Doom on the PC, too, but I never enjoyed controlling it with the keyboard. Uh, I've always whoa, been whoa, more whoa, of a... Whoa. You're saying you take the SNES version of Doom over the PC version? <laughs> <laughs> Again, Neil, nostalgia is a powerful thing. <laughs> I I grant you that the PC version definitely it wipes the floor with a Super Nintendo version. If they would have, you know, if I would have had a gamepad and I could have leaned back a little bit and, and played Doom, you know, on the PC, I think I would have enjoyed it. But at that point, you know, I was still rocking the keyboard and 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 it, it just it, it didn't feel the same. So I. I, you know, I didn't even enjoy Doom that much as a game compared to I, the way that I did Wolfenstein 3D. Wolfenstein was such a new experience. You know, it only came out a year earlier, but it seems like it was much, much earlier. And that really blew me away because it was the first time that I'd done anything, you know, like a first person game that actually moved around in real time, not just screen by screen. And so at the time. I didn't really see Doom for the game changer that it was. And now that I, I know it to be, it was it was more just like Wolfenstein 3D, but in space instead of a castle. How about sure. you, Neil? What were, what were your Doom memories? Mm, sure. So the novelty had, had kind of worn off for you through Wolfenstein. Yeah. Um, I yeah. picked it up on the high street in a shop called Dixon's, which is, was a famous high street store here in the UK. It was hanging on the peg there as shareware. And we didn't see mm -hmm. a huge amount of shareware on the high street on sale. So it was kind of a big deal that this, bit of shareware software was being pushed so hard on the high street i took mm -hmm. it home and i got my fix i had a 486 pc at the time which could run it at full screen i didn't need to letterbox it so i got a decent frame rate and just the chainsaw massacre experience was <laughs> full on for me I, I loved it i hadn't i hadn't given wolfenstein much time so this was the first for me the, the full experience um yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I wanted more than the shareware version offered me. Even though it was very generous, it gave you a lot of levels. I wanted more. So imagine my joy when I found a friend of a friend on the estate, had the full version, and was willing to give me a copy of it. And I got in touch with them, and they said, yeah, pop round. I'll do your copy. You'll need 25 floppy disks. And I thought, what? <laughs> that is a lot of floppy disks. But okay, I really want this game. So I repurposed all the cover disks I could find, You know, got together 25 floppy disks headed over there and sure enough i sat patiently and waited while he copied all 25 discs he had a full tower pc um do you remember when tower pcs were higher than the desk and they sat on the floor massive. And that? yeah massive massive, massive. Thing. i still want to get a full tower case at some point but yeah i thought yeah this guy knows what he's doing i'll just wait for him to copy it sure enough he did got home as quickly as i could and loaded it up and that is after i copied it onto my pc that's when i realized why it was 25 floppy disks all the voices in the game had been replaced by the shouts of farmers with West Country accents. <laughs> <laughs> they were all screaming, get off my land and uh, other stereotypical farmer phrases. And uh, I didn't know how to change it back. So I played Doom to completion many times as though I was a West Country farmer, you know, trespassing <laughs> on a local farm to rustle some sheep. So uh, it's sheep actually rangor, hard. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hard for me to play Doom now without hearing those voices because that was the norm. Yeah. Anyway, back to this Mega Drive version, because um, footage has now emerged of a Doom port running very smoothly. Like in, you've got to see this thing to see how impressively smooth it is on the Mega Drive. It's virtually full screen, just a tiny border around it on a stock console. Now, this was released by Unique Games, that's U-N-I-Q Games, as an unfinished demo. 
Uh, you can see it on a YouTube video, but they do say that the full version will be done soon. So they're working very quickly to finish it off. It's, it's an unofficial port, of course. There's nothing uh, official about this. But how have they achieved this? It's pretty clever, I think. They haven't burned the games into a ROM and loaded it from a traditional cartridge. They're loading it from the Mega EverDrive Pro, which is a typical flash cart that lets you load ROM images onto original hardware. But the game is actually tapping in to the chips on the EverDrive cart. Is that cheating? I don't know, but it gives it the extra grunt needed for Doom. It's essentially using it it's, as a co-processor. It definitely shows you how powerful these these EverDrive cartridges are relative to the power of the systems they're running on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the cartridge is probably more powerful than the Mega Drive itself. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so is it cheating? I would argue not because it's just like the SNES using the SuperFX chip or the SVP chip in some of the Mega Drive cartridges. It's just that we're in 2021 now. We've, we've got a more powerful chip in the cartridge. So... It, it's not period authentic, that's for sure. We couldn't have done this back in the day because we didn't have those chips in our cartridges, but it is a lovely, lovely thing to see in action. So I do recommend you go and check it out. Um, it also begs the question, what, what else can we see the Mega Drive do now using these techniques, using a coprocessor in this way in 2021? We're already seeing full motion video being streamed using the EverDrive Pro in a similar fashion. So they're working these things out. We'll probably see things like a Dragon's Lair port soon enough or space ace i'm looking forward to seeing just how far this thing can be pushed on a on a stock mega drive um it's certainly an exciting development so check it out all links to this story as well as everything else you hear on the podcast today are in the show notes one of the constant complaints retro enthusiasts have is the ever-increasing price of their cherished games and systems well until it comes time to sell and then they're happy about it right uh, there's lots of reasons why all of these aging electronics in our cupboards are gaining value. More and more gamers are reaching that certain age when they have more disposable income to throw around to buy up their childhood memories. Uh, examples of working machines and good nick are becoming harder to find. And of course, there's good old speculation. Who's to say how much that Amstrad or Amiga might be worth in five years' time? Neil, as an acquirer of things, what have you noticed here recently uh, surging up in price? Well, to be honest, John, I don't approach collecting as an investment. I, I have to approach it, um, well, from a slightly different angle. I, I buy what I think I can make an entertaining video about with, with the thing. Um, so it's not necessarily the same thing other people are looking for. More often than not, it's something nobody else is looking for because then I can guarantee nobody else is making a video about it. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking for slightly different things. Um, but yes, there's no doubt that prices have been creeping up. The trajectory is upwards right now. Um, across the board, I don't think there's any one particular thing. Um, we did see a little jump a while back on things like the Sharp 68000 as they became more familiar outside of Japan and we got to know what these powerful beasts could do. But I think across the board, we're seeing things creeping up. What about you, John? What are you seeing? Yeah, I've seen a, a general increase in prices going up on, in almost everything. As somebody who's been in the buying and selling business of video games for a long, long time, uh, I opened up my eBay account in 1998 for buying and selling of video games. Uh, I, uh, I've noticed two major trends. One is that the Atari VCS market is trending down and 
pretty much everything else is trending up. The the biggest jump that I've seen, uh, at least in the past five years, is the price of Amiga hardware, believe it or not. Um, the Amiga 500, just to give you an example, uh, undoubtedly the most common Amiga. Um, it regularly sells here in the States on eBay for between three and four hundred dollars. I mean, that's that's unreal. That's that's, that's almost where you were getting up to the price that it sold for originally. Uh, I can't explain those prices when you consider that 10 or 15 years ago, you could pick them up for 100 bucks all day long. Well, of course, the only answer, Neil, is the massive popularity of the Amigos Everything Amiga podcast. That's what it is. <laughs> They're leading people to the wonderful world of the Amiga. But but seriously, it's a seller's market. If you've been holding Commodore machines, you may want to think about unloading some of them because you can make some cash. Um, but of course, we shouldn't discount the coverage old electronics get in the mainstream press. And in the United States, the newspaper of record here is uh, the New York Times. Uh, they've recently run a story, Neil, about the trend of retro computing as a hobby. Uh, they, they cover all of the doorways that people enter through, including you know rebuilding machines, repairing old machines, the nostalgia factor of just being able to look at something on your shelf and get a little thrill. And the biggest thing for me has always been connecting with other people, other collectors through physical get-togethers, at least when those were actually a thing, or through online communities. So... Uh, given the relative obscurity of the machines, I was surprised and somewhat gratified that the article didn't feature images of the Apple II or the C64, which here in the States are kind of the de facto old computers, but they actually had pictures of the Amiga and the Atari ST. So how cool is that? Very cool. Very cool. And funnily enough, just a few days later, John, the Times newspaper, which is a pretty big one here in the UK, also published an article on the surging popularity of retro. I made my mum proud, John. I got my photo in the paper. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful, Neil. <laughs> and um, yeah, they, they asked me to comment on a, a lot of things, but mostly it was about the rising prices of machines. And then on the day it was published, I was contacted by the Times Radio and I made a very brief appearance on the radio. I had a real media day that day. And um, unfortunately, I had in one ear the studio shouting, we're running out of time. Come on, come on, make it quick, make it quick. So they were behind schedule. <laughs> so I just had a very short space of time. And what they were shouting at me really was, how much is it worth? How much can these things go for? And it left me a little bit sad because of that focus on price. You know, In the print interview, I went into great detail about the intrinsic value of these machines, about the art and the music that we create and all of the things we do, the communities that crop up around the machines. And I had all of this lined up to talk about on the radio, but of course I was cut off, so I couldn't I couldn't go into that on the mainstream. So given the opportunity, if the mainstream media comes knocking again, I'm going to try really, really hard to move that narrative on because I think it needs to be heard. It's not just about price, uh, although that does make for a good headline. But of course... We we know this. Our listeners know this. We are we are deep in the niche, John. We know what's going on. Uh, I don't need to preach to you and our listeners. But does any of the coverage that you've seen make you want to to cash out and, and buy the yacht that you've always dreamed of? <laughs> Neil, they can pry my machines from my cold dead. <laughs> no, that's a lie, total lie. There, there's a price on everything. Everything you know, every physical object that is in my my video game collection has a price. If, you, if there's not, you're insane. Because, um, you know, if any of my consoles or computers start to edge, at least me personally, if they edge toward that five figure mark, if I can get over $10,000 for anything that I have, 
that's money that that could be used in, in a lot of really useful ways here around the Schaller household. So, um, and, and I really don't think that those numbers are out of the realm of possibility as these things continue to disappear from the public, you know, things break, they get thrown away accidentally. Uh, you know, in 10 or 20 ne- years, uh, the the cave, which you currently reside in, Neil, could contain more value than the, the crown jewels of the Tower of London. I'm not lying, Neil. It could. <laughs> I think I think it does sit at the back of all of our minds, all of us as collectors. It's almost like a, a get out of jail card, isn't it? Like if it all goes wrong, I've got the collection. I can sell the collection, and, right. and, and it will help. So it, it is all in the backs of our minds a little bit, even if we uh, would never admit that we would sell what we do. But yeah, ask me again in twenty years' time if I feel the same, uh, and if the option, uh, if if the prices are such that I could just sell up, uh, retire to the countryside. Well, my opinion might change a little bit, but we'll we'll see. It, it, it might be on the cards, John, but not right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me neither. Me neither. So this is something I'd actually get our uh, get our listeners' thoughts on. Um, what do you think about the value of these old computers? Are, are we in the middle of a bubble? You know, should you be sort of taking your profits now, or should you be investing in old electronics as part of your retirement portfolio? Uh, let us know. Uh, you can post on our subreddit, or you can leave us a comment on uh, YouTube. What, whatever, however you want to get a hold of us, I'd love to know your thoughts on sort of this uh, video game uh, upward mobility of pricing versus collectability. And uh, thank you to subreddit user Asian Cyberman for submitting this story to us. John, if there's one thing that hasn't aged well for me, it's the mouse, the bull mouse in particular. I don't I don't remember it being a problem at the time, aside from the weekly routine of picking out the fluff and the dirt and cleaning the mouse ball and, and cleaning the rollers. But I've become so used to modern laser mice now that I find it hard to go back. And this week, a really interesting little device has cropped up that might alleviate the pain of us retro computer users. This is a device called the Mouster. That's with a capital S and T in the middle. I think it's a play on Mister, perhaps. But mm. uh, its objective is to allow as many USB mice as possible to be compatible with as many retro computers as possible. Tiny little PCB with a D9 plug on one side and a USB port on the other. All you do is you plug it into your, your D9 port on your retro computer, and then you plug your USB mouse in. Nice and simple. Small enough to be um, unobtrusive and not get in the way of anything that you're doing on your old machine. The first batch has been produced and shipped with support for the Atari ST, the Atari Falcon for those many, many Falcon owners out there, the Amigas 500, 600, 1200, 3000 and 4000, so pretty much all of them. And the 1,000 gets left in the cold again. Oh, yeah, the 1,000's not listed. Yes, well spotted. There's no, there's no reason why. Yeah, there's no reason why it shouldn't there's work no with reason. the 1,000. I think yeah. I think that they just figured it's too obscure, but it will work. Trust me. They probably just don't have one to test it on. Um, yeah. The 8-bit Ataris are also listed. So your favorites, the XL and the XE range, mm-hmm. the C64 and the C128. And it can be flashed with new firmware as and when more compatibility is introduced. So the only problems with it so far that I've come across are that if you try and use a modern mouse with tons of LED lights on there, lots of RGB, then the old computer might not give it enough juice to um, to be compatible with it. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really nice option to have. You don't need to retrofit lasers into your Amiga tank mouse or do destructive mods anymore. You can just plug in your modern one and enjoy all of the benefits. And I really like the sound of that. Um, Sounds pretty good, right, John? Is is this a solution to a problem that you have, or are you happy with the old mice? 
you know, when I heard you talk about this, it was it was like I heard angels singing from up above. <laughs> this is I am in full agreement with you. Uh, old ball mice are just the worst. They're the worst. And and they're the, when you open one of these ball compartments up after you, you haul an old computer home from the local car boot sale, you have no idea what matter of filth might be hiding in that tiny compartment. It's it's the worst part of cleaning a computer is is opening up the mouse and seeing what's in there. Um, unlike period joysticks and controllers, which I still prefer over modern solutions most of the time, uh, navigating around a GUI or controlling applications and games with an old school ball mouse is just an exercise in frustration. Um, you know, this has got me thinking about other vintage peripherals and their modern solutions. Remember that light gun you covered on your show last year, Neil? Whatever became of that thing? Hmm, that was the uh, the Sindon light gun. Um, that did actually make it to market. I'm pleased to see after covering it because it's always a bit worrying when you cover a prototype and, um, you know, say how great it is and, and you don't want it to disappear into obscurity. But uh, Andy, who made it, actually brought it to market. It appeared on Linus Tech Tips a few months back and, and they gave it very high praise indeed. So he's, he's really smashing it with the Sindon gun. And um, on the subject of light guns, I've got a couple coming soon from a company called Arcade Europe, who claim to have created uh, another alternative which will allow us to use light guns on modern displays. This is the big problem. They all depended on the old CRT beam. And uh, mm -hmm. we've never quite had one that um, has the same low latency or zero latency as we used to have on the CRTs. So the, these new modern solutions are trying to tackle that and Arcade Europe claim that they have one. So... There's going to be a shootout on the channel soon. We'll, we'll compare <laughs> the Arcade Europe gun to the Sindon light gun and see what comes out on top. But it's, it's great to see these things being developed. But um, yeah, we're moving away from the, the original hardware now, the, the mouse adapters. Um, only 220 of these adapters were made in the first batch, but I've got a feeling there's going to be a demand out there. It's, it's such a small thing, but such a useful thing to so many of us. So if you want them, please follow the link in the show notes. Show your support to the project and the creators of it. And um, hopefully with enough interest, we'll get more batches out there and we can all get hold of one. Neil, one of the most interesting things about the retro gaming and retro computing hobby to me is to see what can be done using original hardware. Anybody can strap an FPGA or an accelerator to a motherboard and speed things up a bit. That was the sound of 1,000 vampire subscribers clicking the unsubscribe <laughs> button. Sorry, guys. But the using the chips that came off the factory floor in the 80s and 90s to me is a much more exciting proposition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're dipping back into the realms of what we discussed earlier here on the Mega Drive. Um, it's always exciting to see what the original hardware can, can do and to see people push it past those original barriers that have been established and, and that have been considered for, for decades to be immovable when people shift those immovable walls on this old these old hardwares um it's it's exciting it really does excite me john yeah yeah and as part of the effort to rev up existing machines using original hardware there's an engineer named vitor Velella, i believe is how you pronounce his name he's launched a new project to attempt to overclock the super fx chip which we were just talking about you know this story is actually very similar to the, the first story we talked about this week what makes this especially interesting is that the super fx chip is not found in the super nintendo console but inside select games so they instead of trying to upgrade the system 
because you know they can't just ship chips to you know consumers to have them install them themselves they started putting the chips in the games and this is something that goes all the way back to the original uh, Nintendo Entertainment System when this was done quite often so uh, what Mr. Valela has found is that he's able to overclock the Super FX chip found inside games like uh, Star Fox or Star Wing as you, you called it um, and uh, Stunt Race FX he can overclock these chips from 21 megahertz all the way up to 70 or 80 megahertz. So we're talking about three or four times the clock speed without them overheating or becoming unstable. And this is the important thing. He's able to integrate the timing of the overclocked chip with the Super Nintendo internal CPU. And so this leads to a massive improvement, a supposed improvement in the performance of Super FX games, which up to this point have been dogged by horrible frame rates. And, you know, just like we were talking about in the Doom story, um, even the Super FX chip, 2 chip, which Doom had to have been one of just the handful of games that used that, it still was not a real winner in terms of, you know, giving you a really smooth play experience. So uh, using this hack, Vitor re reports that he was able to run these titles at 30 frames per second without the game running faster than its intended speed. So, Neil, do you have any experience with these uh, Super FX chip games like uh, like Star Fox or Stunt Race FX? Well, remember, John, we also enjoyed our games here in the UK at the more sophisticated and leisurely 50 hertz power <laughs> mode, <laughs> as opposed to your preposterous 60 hertz NTSC rate. So we have even more to benefit from with these speed boosts. But um, as I recall playing these Super FX games, the speeds weren't even close to 30 frames per second. Uh, to be fair, they were balanced and they were playable. Uh, you, they were very good games, but but they were by no stretch of the imagination buttery smooth. So um, I'd be really interested to see this. Yeah, yeah. It, I was a huge Super Nintendo kid at the time, and I remember being absolutely awed by Stunt Race FX. It was, it was so cool to see a car being rendered in 3D and not just running on a flat track, but having, you know, elevation and going off different ramps and things like that. Uh, remember, this is before the N64 when these, this sort of thing became commonplace. And at the time, I still hadn't seen anything in 3D other than arcade games like Virtual Fighter. Um, and, you know, even in the PC world, we're talking about 1994, 3D was still a very new thing, although there, there were some pretty advanced things going on if you had the proper equipment on the PC. Uh, now, Neil, I'd like to get your opinion on something related to this story. I've always believed that the Trojan horse of consoles was this ability to bootstrap extra hardware onto the cartridges themselves. There, therefore, you, you eliminate the paradox that uh, plagued the Amiga community in the early 90s. Uh, you know what I mean. The vast majority of Amiga owners didn't own AGA machines, so few publishers wanted to spend the effort making AGA games. And since there weren't many AGA games, the incentive to buy AGA machines was low. And it's this, it's this you know, uh, cycle of not buying and not producing that sort of leads to ruin. So uh, if the Amigas past the Amiga 500 would have shipped with a cartridge slot, developers could have simply added an AGA chip onto the ROM cart itself. Uh, my question is, do you think adding a cartridge slot would have done anything to keep the Amiga the dominant 16-bit gaming platform in the UK? Or, or did other faults of the system, such as the one-button stick and, and rampant piracy, have more to do with its downfall? Yeah, I mean, it's a clever idea to put these chips into cartridges because you're... 
you always want to cater to the lowest common de denominator to reach the, the biggest market possible. So by not expecting the users to upgrade their machines and just include it quietly inside the cartridge, it's, it's a smart move if you can do it at an affordable price. But a, a cartridge slot kind of was part of the design of the Amiga 600 um, and then later the 1200. You remember they had PCMCIA slots in the side. And these were mm -hmm. discussed a lot when the A600 was being previewed. I remember reading in Amiga Format magazine, they pitched this as a cartridge slot through which to load games. And mm. I think they wanted to gain publishers' confidence that piracy would be cracked down on. Never mind adding extra chips and things. They really wanted to crack down on piracy because it was hurting the Amiga publishers so much and right. uh, encouraging them to move to the consoles where it was a little bit safer. So, um, you know, that did too fall into the paradox category though, because why would you make a game for an Amiga 600 on a PCMCIA card when the bulk of the owners at that time had an Amiga 500, which didn't have the slot? Why would they engage factories and take on the extra hardware costs to cater to a smaller market? It just, it just wasn't gonna happen, John. So mm -hmm. in the case of the Amiga, they just needed to give the next generation machines a better spec. That's what they needed to do. I don't think they could have fudged it or found a way around it with cartridge slots. But um, mm. just to bring us back to this overclocked Super FX chip, John, as much as we love to take the off-ramp of every story possible into Amigaville, <laughs> we have to remain impartial. Let's stay on topic. Uh, what sort of games or demos have you seen demonstrated on this overclocked Super FX chip? Is it is it running the commercial games without fault? Or are we just seeing tech demos so far? Well, so far, I haven't seen any real-world testing of this new implementation. Uh, basically, all of this information comes from this guy's Patreon page where he's working on multiple projects. And this is one of the you know neat implementations of, of Patreon is that, you know, you, you can sponsor, of course, a lot of creative content, but you can also sponsor sort of people's own innovation where people are working on various projects and you might not get a physical thing or something to listen to or watch every month, but you're supporting basically somebody's free time to work on these, these new projects, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, right now on his Patreon page, it's, it's basically some cocktail napkin schematics and some future promises, but looking at some videos of previous attempts to overclock the super FX, they do increase the frame rate, but they don't do this integration with the super Nintendo CPU. So uh, it, playing a game like Star Fox at a faster speed, it really increases the difficulty because the game wasn't designed to be played at, at a lightning speed. It, 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 even if it's running a lot smoother, um, you know, it's uh, it's still, it, it makes the game too difficult, basically, in yeah, my opinion. It was, it was designed uh, you know, to run at 50 hertz, John. That's what it was designed to run that, at. That's right. <laughs> Everybody had their eye on the PAL standard. <laughs> that was really, the, that was that was the gold standard. Um, you know, I, I prefer these older 3D games to run at a, at a somewhat more leisurely pace, so I can sort of take in the, the scenery and stuff. I, I, I would like to have a better frame rate, though. Uh, if I want a modern version of these games that run at a breakneck speed, there's tons of new newly developed software, newly developed games that that give you, you know, high speed and a really, really smooth frame rate. Something like Horizon Chase Turbo is a good example of that. So if you're interested in following the development of the overclocked Super FX chip, check out Vitor Velela's laboratory. The link is in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favourite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.